I'm Matt, campus pastor here at Menlo Church Mountain View. We're continuing the conversation on what it means to be an unlikely witness. And our hope for this series is that we become more aware of what's happening in our everyday lives and how we can use those experiences to witness to others because we are unlikely witnesses right where we are. I wanna clarify what it means to actually be a good witness. I was in ninth grade and I was the new kid in school. I desperately wanted to fit in, but had almost no friends. So in order to expand my social circle a bit, I decided to sign up for an after-school club. The one that caught my interest was the mock trial team. Essentially, this is where you learn the ins and outs of courtroom and legal proceedings. This was during the Sam Waterston era of law and order, which I was watching religiously at the time. Students are given a case to study and meets are held against other schools. And your team is either assigned the prosecution or the defense, and you are the role of a lawyer or a witness. And since I was new and inexperienced, I was assigned the role of witness. I was required to study the case. My character was witness to an incident that took place. I had to memorize the particular details and be aware that upon cross-examination, the lawyers would try to point out inconsistencies in my story. So the day finally came when we had our first meet. I had studied my notes as extensively as I could, and I did very well responding to the questions of the defense. Then the prosecutor stepped up. He started asking me questions I didn't know the answer to, details that I couldn't recall in my case study. My lawyer tried to object, but I was ordered to answer the questions. I started inventing and fabricating statements because I was confused. I can remember breaking out into a hot sweat, blood rushing to my ears, the room getting fuzzy, and after what seemed like an hour of interrogation, the last thing I heard the prosecutor say to me was, so you lied. Couldn't even remember what the question was in reference to. I just remember the cold stare of this cocky upperclassman and my confusion feeling that I did something wrong. I just wanted to get off the stand, so I quietly responded, yes. It was like a shockwave went through the courtroom. My team threw their papers up in the air. A smirk flashed across the prosecutor's face, and the judge's jaw was hanging wide open. Needless to say, we lost that one. And our coach proceeded to give me a long and colorful explanation on what it means to be a good witness. In the context of the courtroom, the witness has one job, to testify, to say what you've seen. You don't have to defend, you don't have to condemn. You only need to tell the truth. The issue was I was trying to give a statement about something I hadn't experienced and as a result, under pressure, it was revealed that I didn't know what I was talking about. In week one of this series, Cheryl talked about the E word, evangelism. And I feel that I have to acknowledge the contentious nature of that word. Ask anyone on the street if you can evangelize to them for a moment, and you'll likely be met with looks of confusion or dismissal because, frankly, it's unnatural. There's an agendified, determined nature behind it, and people generally do not want to feel pressured into decisive situations. How did modern-day evangelism become so ineffective? I think it's for two reasons. The first is that somewhere along the way, believers started to believe that witnessing, simply seeing and saying what we've experienced, wasn't enough. We needed to convince and convict our listeners. 
And in our pursuit to be more persuasive, we lost our willingness to witness. We stopped giving our testimony and we started putting others on trial. And some imagined themselves the defense using information and adaptation to suit their argument. Some imagined themselves prosecutors using criticism and condemnation to prove their point. We all know people of faith like this. They're usually learned, uncurious, a bit grumpy, and absolutely insufferable. In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, the late Brennan Manning said this, We must never allow the authority of books, institutions, or leaders to replace the authority of knowing Jesus Christ personally and directly. When the religious views of others interpose between us and the primary experience of Jesus as the Christ, we become unconvicted and unpersuasive travel agents, handing out brochures to places we have never visited. And the second reason that modern-day evangelism became ineffective is because of the sadness in our own stories. Because sometimes the truth is painful. It doesn't fit nicely or neatly into preconceived religious categories. So rather than confronting our past or dealing with our present, we present ourselves in a way that appears to be more favorable, more dignified, more uncomplicated, and more inauthentic. Regrettably, these practices couldn't be further from the example set by Jesus. With every encounter, Jesus met people right where they were. He listened intently. He heard their pain. He sensed their longing for hope and responded accordingly, directing them toward a God who loves and sees them. And the result? A change. And not a random or spontaneous change, but something that radically reorients the perspective of the person. They're suddenly aware of the significance of their story. It all makes sense. They've had a brush with something amazing and they can't help but share it. Take, for example, the result of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. He listened, engaged, and responded. And the woman was suddenly aware of the significance of her story she became a witness. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. We have now heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the Savior of the world. In the context of Christianity, the witness has one job, to testify, to say what you've seen. You don't have to defend, you don't have to condemn. You only need to tell the truth, no matter how messy or complicated or painful it is. God will handle the rest. So, what is the significance of your story? What have you been a witness to? 
Growing up, I was unsure of what the future held for me relationally. And as a result, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it or trying to manipulate the outcome. I entered into my 20s single and I entered into my 30s, not only married, but with three kids. It's funny how things can change drastically in a relatively short amount of time. And those were some fun and chaotic years, but I can still remember the moment that Rochelle said to me, something is different about Daniel. Daniel is our youngest. He was 15 months at the time. Different how? I mean, he's our only boy. He has two older, overbearing sisters. But Rochelle continued, I think something might be wrong. He makes sounds, but he doesn't speak. He made physical milestones, but isn't meeting his developmental, social, or emotional milestones as expected. So we began evaluations, started at-home early intervention at 18 months, we enrolled him in a special education class at preschool and at the age of four received the formal diagnosis of moderate severe autism spectrum disorder. I entered into my 30s not only married but with three kids and I entered into my mid-30s the parent of a special needs child. It's funny how things can change drastically in a relatively short amount of time. Now, at first glance, you wouldn't know that Daniel is different. He likes to wear hats mostly a bright red beanie, and he doesn't really care for school portraits. And he prefers to dress himself, which means that sometimes he unintentionally looks like Mr. Smee from Peter Pan. We absolutely love Daniel. He brings us great joy with his silly personality and unconditional love. He adds value to our family in a way that only he could. With autism comes some difficult behaviors. It is a spectrum, so each child experiences the world differently. Unfortunately, there are some behaviors that Daniel goes through that can be very hard for us as a family. He tends to shout very loudly and unpredictably. He has public meltdowns. He has certain rituals that he has to do throughout the day. There are things that can cause our family deep grief. Some days can feel so overwhelmingly emotional, mentally and even spiritually. Rochelle and I just look at each other and we say, today was hard, tomorrow's another day. But what Daniel has done for us personally is given us a new paradigm of understanding. We relate to individuals like him on a deeper level and we appreciate the challenges of atypical parenthood even more. Daniel has altered our story in such a significant way that in spite of all the challenges, we sense the presence and hope of God like never before. So I ask again, what is the significance of your story? What have you been witness to? I'd like you to meet some friends of ours who also have a significant story. Hi, I'm Rochelle. I'm married to Matt and Daniel is our son. Today, I'm joined with some of my great new friends that I would love for you to meet. Jean and Paul, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Uh, sure. So um, I'm Paul. This is my wife, Jean. We've been married for 12 years now and uh, we have two wonderful kids. Um, our daughter, Evie, is 11, so she'll be going to middle school this fall. And then uh, we have Theo, who's uh, turning four in July. That's great. When did you realize something was different about Theo? Um, 
It was pretty soon, um, like as soon as he was born, we knew that uh, there was something different about him because uh, uh, he was born and then um, they wanted him to stay in the, um, the NICU, the neonatal ICU. Um, we ended up staying for about three weeks. Um, initially, it was because uh, his blood sugar had spiked. It was really high um, after he was born. But even after they got that under control, um, he couldn't eat. Um, so he had difficulty taking formula, um, breastfeeding, um, everything. And so he wasn't gaining weight. Um, and so that was the big concern. Doctors didn't know what was going on. Um, so they finally, you know, through, um, you know, like an NG tube, the tube that goes through your nose, um, they were able to give him enough food to put a little bit of weight on him. And then um, we brought him home. But even after we came home, it was really um, just a struggle to get him to eat. Um, so, yeah, ever since he was born, uh, we knew medically there was something going on. It just was a huge mystery for the first, like, six months or so. Like, every day we're trying to feed him, just uh, daily, um, you know, frustrations. Yeah, that's a lot to take in for a brand new baby. Yeah. So what is his condition? Do you have a diagnosis now? Uh, yeah, we do. He, well, after seeing specialists, after specialists for over a year, um, our pulmonologist or his pulmonologist told him to, uh, told us to go see a geneticist. And so we got a comprehensive genetics testing done. And so there was a de novo mutation in one of his genes. And he has a, uh, this rare genetic disorder called Kabuki syndrome. And that kind of manifests differently in, you know, different Kabuki patients. But for him, kind of his main issues were his upper airway. Uh, so he has dysphagia, which is this uh, inability to effectively swallow. So for um, several years now, he's had a, a gastrostomy tube, feeding tube. Um, and uh, also with that, it's like learning disability, speech disability, uh, yeah, language developmental, all of that. Um, plus a lot of very intricately, weirdly challenging things that, um, yeah, compounded is, is a lot, so, uh, yeah. What do you wish other people would understand about your life? That's a loaded question, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that's, yeah, I think um, there's a part of me that wants to say, hey, just come talk to us, you know, we'll let you know. Um, I think the hard part is, is what you see is not what you always get with him. You know, um, I think the people, our community, friends and family, uh, they see snapshots of his life and uh, they see potentially like normal, you know, and um, our his ENT told us his diagnosis, especially dysphagia, that part, it's a it's an invisible disorder. Mm. And uh, for him, people think, oh, he can't swallow, he can't eat. So uh, that's hard, stick a tube in him and then boom, he's good. But we just don't realize what swallowing means on a day-to-day -day basis. That means that when he cries, he can't process his secretions. So we had to stop him from crying. Whereas, you know, sometimes we are told to uh, like, oh, just let them cry it out. It's good for them. We couldn't do that. Right. Um, that means sleeping. When we sleep, 
you know, drool pools, sometimes on our pillow, sometimes inside of our mouth. But every time he shifted, he felt like he was drowning. And so he would just wake up crying. And so I think um, for us, it's just, uh, what you see is not really normal. And um, that's been the hardest thing, I think, for us because um, people just don't know and it's not their fault. Right, right. I understand that in in a similar way um, with Daniel because autism isn't something you can necessarily see. I mean, we showed a picture of Daniel with a red hat um, in the sermon today. And so maybe you might think, oh, that's cute, you know, but his behaviors of why he wears the hat, nobody would really understand just from looking at him. Yeah, so I I understand that. We don't always, our appearances don't always explain the struggle we have as parents or our children have either. How does your faith or relationship with God play a part in this, in your life? I think for me, um, my faith definitely was shaken and challenged, um, especially during the early years, like when it was diagnosis after diagnosis where the news just kept getting worse in our minds. Um, or we thought, we thought, oh, he's getting a little bit better in this aspect. And then something else happens. Um, and then especially with the Kabuki syndrome diagnosis where, you know, we got the genetics results back. And then, you know, we, we were handed this thick booklet of all the research on Kabuki syndrome and, and kind of the long-term prognosis for people with this syndrome. And um, it wasn't good news. And so um, I think definitely there was a lot of anger at, at God. Um, it was harder to pray during those times. Um, but what's funny is um, looking back at the same time, you know, when we were in the hospital room, you know, and holding him because he couldn't lay down in the bed because he was crying all the time um, during the recovery, doctors didn't know what was going on. Then both of us, we realized who else would we ask for help? There's nobody else to turn to. And so we would just pray to God, please help Theo and help us to get through this period. Um, And in that sense, it was purely a gesture of desperation because really the doctors were telling us, they come in, they check on him. We don't know why, like what's going on? You know, let's just wait and see. I mean, even when, you know, one um, aide came in and tell us, well, maybe you should go home. It might be better for him. You know, um, yeah, <laughs> and, and so I think, um, but you know, I think even that, I feel like it's God's faithfulness, despite my shortcomings, my anger. Like He kind of He made sure that I didn't completely turn away from the faith, um, and I think even that is His grace. Looking back, that He did not let go of us. Like He said, you know, continue to trust in Me, and I know it's hard. Um, and I hope that, you know, I don't think I'm there yet, but I hope at some point in the future, I'll look at Theo coming into our lives as, um, you know, God's way of strengthening our faith. Um, I think right now it's still hard to find a good reason or even joy in, in the midst of suffering. You know, I think that's one theme that we've been kind of talking about. Um, but I think that's the hope that, you know, in one year, five years, 10 years, that we'll look back and we'll see 
God's plan and His faithfulness. I mean, we already know God's faithfulness. He has come through in many ways. Um, a lot of Theo's medical issues are much, much better now. Um, but, you know, I think you know, the big picture, I hope that we can, we can more confidently share that, that faith. You know? At the risk of sounding super trite, uh, I have hope and hope. Because for a lot of people, they don't have that or don't know to know that they have that. Right. You know? Um, and for that, I'm like genuinely thankful to my parents. And I know everyone comes from different uh, backgrounds and faith and or lack of faith or no, no faith. Uh, but for me, I'm really thankful that my parents have um, brought me up in, in the church, taught me about God's faithfulness and shown me through their actions, you know, and through that, I, you know, I, I was thankful that um, I was able to cling to that, you know, in my darkest times. And to be really honest, when things were hard, I had no words. And um, I remember memorizing the Lord's Prayer and the memory verses growing up. And I remember thinking, oh, this is not authentic because I'm just memorizing, you know, just words from the Bible. <laughs> um, but when I had no words of my own because I was too scared to pray my own words, because I was too scared to pray specifically for things that I felt like, oh, what if they, God doesn't answer, you know? And I feel like, in those times when I would just pray the Lord's Prayer, because that's what I remembered, mm -hmm. and that's what came. Um, that part where it says, uh, give us this day our daily bread, echoed so loudly each time, and I realized this is it. My hope in survival is to just survive today. Yes. And that was it. And I think that survival, right, uh, is surviving today. And the hope was that in knowing that today I'm all right. You know, and it was really relieving because I think when you have a medically challenged kid or, you know, a special needs kid, it's, it, you, you're anxious about everything going forward. You know, will he be bully leader when he's not cute anymore? Will people respect his disability? Will people, just all the things. And so um, it was really nice not to worry about tomorrow, you know? So I think the hope for me was you know, God gave me strength for today. Thank you so much for your willingness and vulnerability um, and sharing with us today your story because other people will hear your story and be encouraged um, and to know that they're not alone in their survival moments or grief. Can I pray um, with you? Jesus, thank you so much for Jean and Paul and their um, willingness to open up to our church. God, we pray for those who are struggling right now, parents, adults, anybody who is struggling with grief and heartache. And we just ask that you would um, send your Holy Spirit to comfort them and be with them. God, in moments of survival, when we have nothing left, we pray that we would have, find courage to ask for help. It's not easy to ask for help sometimes, God, but I just ask that we would have the courage to do so and that you would surround us in the right time with the right people who are willing to help, God. Send your peace to our hearts. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. We're so grateful for our friends to share the significance of their story and how they are witnesses to it. 
And so before we part ways, I want to encourage you, if you're in the midst of a challenge right now, that we are all unlikely witnesses right where we are. And our story is continually being written. If you've never taken time to think through or write your story, I hope you will this week. And I I don't mean an autobiography. I mean the significant part of your story, the experience that God has brought you through that has made an impact on your life. And if you haven't yet sensed or been made aware of what that is yet, I'd like to leave you with three simple thoughts. The first is this, be fully present. We can't be witnesses if we aren't paying attention. Whatever you're in the midst of right now, feel it. Don't run from it. Don't ignore it. Don't overlook it. If you start paying attention, you might be surprised at what you find. And second, make peace with the past. For some of you, the past might be a wonderful place to visit. Don't get stuck there. And for some of you, the past is something you'd rather forget entirely. Whatever you've been through, like it or not, for better or worse, consciously or unconsciously, it has brought you to this point. But what happened yesterday doesn't have to have power over you today. And lastly, don't fixate on the future. Now, should we plan? Yes, but not at the expense of the present. Good authors tell stories with good endings. Great authors tell great stories. We're not in it for the ending because we have a great author, one who has given significance to our story. And if you imagine your story unimportant or insignificant, you're in good company. Every disciple of Jesus felt the same way. Why else would they leave their lives and livelihood behind? And by their witness, we sit here today talking about their experiences with the author of their lives. I leave you with the parting words to Jesus and his followers from Acts chapter 1. It is not for you to know the dates or times that the Father has designated by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. Share your story, tell the truth, and God will handle the rest. And just as the disciples gathered around the table at the upper room that faithful night, each one of them had a past, a present, and a future. And in the presence of their author, they found significance in their story. They were changed for good. They were the original unlikely witnesses. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took bread and when he had broken it, he gave thanks and said to his disciples, take and eat. This is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. And after they had eaten in the same manner, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, take and drink. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ.
God, we are so grateful that we can gather around your table and that we know we're welcome. Father, I ask for those who are in the midst of a challenge right now, whose suffering can be felt, or for those who feel insignificant in their story, would you help radically reorient our lives towards you? Would you help us to see the purpose in the pain of the challenges that we've been in the midst of? And would you make us witnesses right where we are? Amen.